遭遇，我今见闻得受持，愿皆如来真实意。The unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma, in hundreds of thousands of millions of eons, is difficult to encounter. Now that I have come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing. I bow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master and Dharma friends, welcome to our sutra lecture. This is the 18th of May. We're here in Berkeley, California, and、uh, we're going to be lecturing, looking into the、uh, Flower Garland Sutra together. And we have a、uh, we have a total of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven guys on this side. There's a couple of them. Hi there. And、uh, women's side is a little more populated, and the balcony we have two Dharma friends, and the reason is, by and large,、um, the Ten Thousand Buddhas repentance is happening up at City of Ten Thousand Buddhas, which is a good thing. And we predicted that this would be a small house tonight, which is, in fact, the way it is, which is just fine with us, <coughs> because、uh, it's a big Dharma realm, and、uh, we're. We don't measure it by numbers; we measure it by sincerity. So let us take the name of the sutra, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas that you find there on the cover of your text, and invoke their presence. Namo Dafangwanfo Ayenji. Ayen haihui opusana moda fangwanpo ayenjing ayen haihui opusana afangwanpo ayenjing. Ayen haihui opusana mo tafangwanpo ayenjing ayen haihui opusana mo tafangwanpo ayenjing. Ayen haihui opusana, pangguangfo ayenjing. Ayen haihui opusana, mo tafangguangfo ayenjing. Ayen haihui opusan. Okay, please turn to page twenty-two and twenty-three in your text. We are about to、uh, launch into the the verses section of the fourth ground.
Um, how's the volume in the back? Dashing, David, okay. Volume in the back is good. Okay, yeah. Can you hear me? Good, yeah. Okay, we'll start right at the top of the page. 二十, 金刚藏菩萨, 玉冲山起义, 耳说颂言, over to the right, at that time, Vajra Treasury Bodhisattva, wishing to restate his meaning, chanted these verses that said, All right, set the stage. We're um, about two thirds of the way through the Sutra, the Flower Garland Sutra, and it's time to explain the Bodhisattva path. And the one whose job that is is named Vajra Treasury Bodhisattva, a treasury of Vajra. And like we talked about Mani a couple weeks ago, this miraculous substance that science can't identify, but all the spiritual texts from the past say it's very real. Here's Vajra, another one, another one of those magical, uh, legendary in, in the sense of uh, stuff of legend, meaning beyond our ability to measure it, can't see it with our consciousness, but doesn't mean it's not there. But the, the sutra has these things in them. Vajra, Mani, uh, Udambara flowers, um, dragons, things like this, that science and zoology and biology have a hard time identifying. But here we have a text that was given by the Buddha who explained the sutras purely to tell you what's going on, not because he wanted to be famous or sell sutras. So we have no reason to doubt him. So here we are. And this bodhisattva is uh, called treasury, storehouse of Vajra, meaning a lot of it, and it's, it's uh, held, it's the best of it. And we're setting the scene when the Buddha said, okay, it's time for that. He said, I don't want to talk about it. I'm not going to tell you. And he just was quiet. And uh, the Buddha uh, actually intervened and said, it's okay. And... Vajra Treasury said, no, they're not going to get it. They're not going to understand it. So a second bodhisattva, moon of liberation, liberation moon, piped up and said, it's okay. It's okay. Um, we, these are great bodhisattvas. They can hear it. They can understand it. And Vajra Treasury bodhisattva said, it's too hard. It's like, what's it like? He said, it's like when a bird goes, Whew. the bird flies by. Can you see his tracks in space? Nope, but that's how hard it is to see the grounds and to, to really get that dharma and uh, to take it in and not doubt it or not say, I don't believe it. So uh, nonetheless, uh, the Buddha came back again. It's very interesting, remember, if you recall, when we explained this back then, because it was back and forth and it was no guarantee that Vajra Treasury was finally going to explain this. And so the Buddha said, it's okay. You can do it. Go ahead. Vajra Treasury said, well, because you say so. (laughs) 
You know, I'll do it on your, your recommendation, world honored one, Bhagavan. So that's where we started. And we've come a long way. We're uh, out of 10, we're now finishing four. So we've been immersed in this teaching for some time. And this is, um, this is the, the phase of the whole process that corresponds to vigor, to strength. Virya, Sanskrit. Jingjin in, in Chinese. Uh, translates as strength, meaning you have to actually put your effort down. It's not immediately easy. And if anybody's chilly over on the men's side, you can just stand right up and close those windows, and that might be a good thing to do. Same thing over here. Uh, it's getting it's cold at night here when the, the bay wind comes through. So um, this is number four. Coming up next is number five. And number five, this is just a quick preview, it's going to be very, very interesting because in number five, he, it's the corresponds to samadhi, to concentration. If you uh, match it with the six paramitas, which become the ten paramitas, so there's a one-to-one. The first ground is giving. Second ground is precepts. Third ground is patience. Fourth ground is vigor. That's where we are. The fifth one is samadhi. But what he talks about is fascinating because here our bodhisattva gets uh, he gets skillful in teaching. What does he learn? All the worldly things that people in the world know. It's upaya, skillful means. The bodhisattva learns the five, what are called the five kinds of knowledge, the fivefold sciences, the panchavidya, the wu mingxie, the five curriculum. If you're a school educator, administrator, you, you need the, t- the fifth ground because it divides into the five kinds of knowledge that were the traditional things that an educated person learned in India. This was the curriculum. And it includes such things as medicine. So Ayurveda is one of these, the, the, the Indian medicine. Another one is not, uh, logic. It teaches you all about debate and logic. Another one is about um, knowledge, which is Buddha Dharma. All of the Buddha Dharma is in there. Teaching about what? Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Path, Twelve Links, you know, the, the uh, Five Skandhas, the Eighteen Realms. That's all considered public knowledge, like mathematics, right? So mathematics is part of logic. There's the, of the Panchavidya, there's the one that I really like called Sheng sound, Sheng Ming, Shabda Vidya. It's about sound. So what is sound? Language. All about language. And it talks about, you know, poetry and language and speech making, so elocution and, you know, all the different aspects of language, including literature, writing, and that sort of thing. But then the one that is the most fun of all is called Gong Chao Ming. We would probably call it arts and crafts. But arts and crafts goes way beyond ordinary arts and crafts that we would think, you know, how to make 
beads, beads or tiling or something. More than that, the bodhisattva who has this fifth knowledge is uh, he or she is able to uh, able to do architecture, build dwellings. This bodhisattva is able to heal, able to do medicine or skill. Uh, not only uh, not only medicine. We talked about Ayurveda, but the bodhisattva is able to look at someone and tell if they're possessed, so they can they can get rid of ghosts and spirits. The bodhisattva is able to do uh, stones, so they can tell rubies and diamonds and emeralds and pearls. The bodhisattva is able to uh, build roads and wheels and the things that you know a civil engineer knows. All of this is considered to be the standard for uh, for an educated person, and this all comes out in our next ground. The bodhisattva masters all this. Uh, oh, when I said sound, I left out music. Music is right there in uh, in sound. So. How interesting. In other words, if, the, uh, if you're a fifth ground bodhisattva, somebody hands you a banjo. Just testing you. Anybody still, still asleep? No? Okay. The bodhisattva is able to uh, play music and he's able to uh, fix your car. You know? And the bodhisattva is able to uh, uh, you know, patch the roof. Because why? He or she has mastered the wuming shi. And that's how he gets close to living beings. The point of it is to get close to them so that people will be willing to learn from him or her. And he can take them across. Because if you don't have any relationships, you can't teach anybody. You're never going to be a Buddha. So how interesting. Coming up. So don't miss it. Um, that's the, uh, the fifth ground coming up. So, um, that's pretty concrete, you know. It's, it's, you could say, in a way, worldly, because it's all about worldly dharma. Then comes number six. And when we get to number six, it's another story. Why? Number six is prajna paramita. And what is prajna paramita corresponding in the grounds? It is... The 12 links. It's conditioned arising. Conditioned arising is, it's one of the basic Buddha dharmas, you know. They say four truths, eightfold path, 12 links. Kind of bump, 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 one, two, ABC. Considered the ABCs of Buddha dharma. But when you actually get into ignorance conditions consciousness, consciousness connects activities. Activities connects to name and form. Name and form connects to Sensate, you know, contact, sensations. It's, it stretches the mind. And the sixth, the sixth ground is deep. It goes deep. Because why? Like all things prajna paramita, there's two truths. There's the truth your, sen- your senses can absorb, and there's the ultimate truth, which it's the Buddha's realm, and you can point to it, but you can't know it. So when we get to our sixth ground, uh, my, my experience of that has always been grounds or anything paramitas. One to five, the airplane is taxiing down the runway, gathering speed, going faster and faster. When you get to number six, the plane takes off. 
and you're no longer in touch with the ground. You're in a realm of wisdom. So it's a little challenging for us, uh, but I, I think we'll be up to it, and we can wonder at it. But you need to say out at the start that it's, it's another realm. It's another realm, but you still want to touch it. So we're finishing number four, about to hit number five. Is that interesting, previews of coming attractions? Anybody like that scare you all away or... Maybe uh, some of you. We'll see. We'll see who's left. You know, uh, it's funny. Over the years, we've we've learned at the Berkeley Monastery that different sutras have different audiences. It's amazing. When we taught the Sixth Patriarch, our first sutra that we lectured here, it was uh, a meditating audience. And then uh, I remember we went into the Bodhi Resolve, and about half half of the same crowd showed up. And then the Medicine Sutra, wow, different group. And we got into Urstor, and Urstor is super popular, you know, and all the people who recite Urstor Sutra every day showed up. Who knew how many people's practices focused on Urstor? Then we got into the uh, Samantabhadra's Practices and Vows, and the Abhatamsaka crowd gathered. And then we, uh, we moved on to uh, the, uh, uh, the Ten Practices and a different group, you know. So we'll see. When we... Uh, uh, when we get into the, the sixth ground, and it could be, could be two years from now, who knows, <laughs> by the rate we're going, it might be a while, but we'll see, the hardcore Abhatamsaka gang will be here. So. Okay, that's a little bit about what's coming up. Vajra Treasury Bodhisattva wanted to explain the same Dharma that he had been talking about, and he's doing it in summary form, and he's chanting it. He's got a melody to it. So it's something like this. Pusa yi jing di san di tsi guan zhong sheng shi fa jie kong jie shi jie ji san jie xin jie xi liao nang qi ru The Bodhisattva, who has already mastered the third ground, then contemplates thoroughly realms of beings, worlds, and dharma, the realm of space, the realm of consciousness, and the three realms, and mind's understandings can engage and master them. So, something like that. So, the other part of the, the other side of the brain, the other hemisphere gets engaged with the melody. So, here we go. Bodhisattva has already mastered the third ground. Remember back when? He's reviewing us from the start of the fourth ground. When the fourth ground started, we remember the third ground. Then he guan, he looks at, he's kind of reviewing, and he guan cha, pusa yi jing di san di. He's already completed, made perfect, mastered the third ground. Si, successively, progressively, guan he looks at, he contemplates with his mind, zhong, sheng, and then in parentheses, jie, and then shi, and then parentheses, jie, and then fa, and there it is, jie. So it's realms, realms of living beings, the realms of uh, worlds, and the realms of dharma, where the principles are explained, revealed, Next, what else happens? 
more. He contemplates, we're still working on that same verb, he looks at with his mind's eye the realm of space that holds all these things, the realm of consciousness that is able to um, distinguish, able to discern all of these realms, and then the three realms, which is the Buddhist description of cosmology, desire, form, and formless. The gods are included there. Then, here's the last line, sums it up. Xin jie, xi liao, his mind, uh, minds and their understandings, xi liao, he completely liao. That's a, that Chinese character, two strokes. That's it. Some people would do it as one. It's actually two. One, two. What does that character mean? It means untied. He's there <coughs> to liao, something means over. It's finished. It's done. And it's kind of, if it was all knotted up, now it's very compliantly laid out before you. It's, it's a great word, to liao. Liao liao. It's over. And so all those things, the realm of living beings, us, where we're busy, 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 busy doing stuff to each other, the realm of the worlds that we create from our busy, busy, busyness, and the realm of dharmas where kind of the laws, the gravity, and the cause and effect, the, the principles are revealed. Furthermore, the realm of space around that, the realm of consciousness that's knowing all that, and then the, the realms, the kind of the vertical stratification of the six paths and the gods um, are all understood. Then look at this, Shinji. It goes inside. If you want to know about all this stuff, you have to look at the mind. Okay? So the famous quote by Guanzi, if Guanzi was a person, there's a Chinese philosopher who's given the name Guanzi. Um, they say he lived at a certain time. Some people say it was really Lao Tzu, uh, or Zhuangzi, some people say. Anyway, there's a book called the Guanzi. And in the Guanzi, this, let's say it's a person, this old, old Chinese philosopher says, all right, everybody wants to know about that, meaning the 10,000 things around us, but our means of knowing that is this. For example, shut your eyes. As soon as you shut your eyes, all, all that is all that gone. Right? So we want to know about this. Who's that handsome guy? Who's that pretty girl? Uh, who left that $100 bill on the sidewalk? Do I dare pick it up? You know, like we, that's that. We want to know that B. But the way you know B is through knowing C. Because this is the thing, this is the root, those are the branch tips. If you really want to know that, then you have to master this. So, if you master this, if you understand the root, you've got all the branches. Because every branch comes from a single root. So Guanzi's point is saying, okay, knowledge, turn, the, turn it around. Turn it around, then you've got knowledge. If you can notice, understand how your eyes are working, how your mind is working, how your ears are working, you will master 
the world around you. So uh, that's profound. You know, we're out there pursuing the branch tips. Who else? Science. Science itself is out there knowing the branch tips, which is good. You know, giving everything a name, measuring everything. But if you can uh, look within, then you understand the mind that is scientific in its pursuit. So, xin jie qi liao. He looks at the mind itself. That's understanding stuff. And then, now here's two powerful verbs. Neng qi ru. He can qi ru. We had trouble translating this for a long, long time. And to say that we, we completely get it now, not for sure. Um, key to understanding this is figuring out what is the bodhisattva doing with his guan. So the bodhisattva is going, okay, look, we got living beings, we got worlds, we have uh, dharmas, we have consciousness, we have space, we have the three realms. And I'm looking at the mind as well, contemplating that. And I can chiru. They're all liao. They're all laid out in front of me, untied. The secrets are laid bare, but they're not mine until I chiru all these. Chi, it has the radical to go. It's the zhou The last two words, see the chi. The last two words in line two of the verses, chi. It means to travel, to go towards, to approach. And we, we translate it as engage. It means you come face to face with all these things. You're, they're on your radar screen. You're, they're on your computer. You've got them. You have that, that uh, page on your browser open. And you ru. Now, the simplest meaning of ru is to go into. You enter them. But to have the bodhisattva enter the realm of consciousness, yeah, it doesn't work very well. So we always said, tend towards and enter which was a clumsy, clumsy translation. Never to tend towards something. That was the way BTTS did it for years. And it's the first word in Matthew's Chinese English Dictionary for qi. So what does it mean when you look at all these realms and then you, he, now he can qi ru because he's a fourth stage bodhisattva now. Well, we're still working on it, but I think it's closer to he can engage these things, meaning he's looking right at them, and then he has mastered them. He's entered them, but only in a sense of meaning it's not taking steps and going through a door. It's not that kind of enter. It's kind of absorbed, digested. We could use the word digest, and that would also work here. They've entered him in a way. So he has got to a place where these are, they and he are one. He's integrated them. That would be another good translation for Chiru. He has thoroughly integrated these into his wisdom now. So when I hear that, I go, oh, yeah, that makes sense to me. To, a, to tend towards and enter is like, no, that's half translated. So he has thoroughly integrated these, this knowledge. Okay, so far so good. Is this too analytical for folks to, you know, what does it mean? Well, the first level is language. So let's look at the language and then see if we can connect it to our experience. Then we've done our job. All right?
Next one. Shirdang Yendi Zeng Shirli Sheng Ru Lai Jia Yong Bu Tui Yu Fu Fa Sung Xin Fu Kwai Guan Fa Wu Chang Wu Yo Chi. He first ascends to the fourth ground, increasing strength and power. He is born to Tathagata's family, he never retreats. Towards the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, his faith cannot be destroyed. He contemplates dharmas as impermanent, and they never arise. Okay. Next, Shi Deng Yen Di. Yen Hui Di, the ground of blazing wisdom. That's the name here. He begins to shi, to start to dung, to go up. So he's, think of it as a ladder, because a large part of the ten grounds is vertical. First ground is below second ground. Second ground is below third ground. Kind of like third grade is below fourth grade. Same way. You know, high school is above middle school, like that. So there's a vertical quality to it. He begins to ascend the blazing ground. That's the, the fourth ground. Zeng Shi Li. He increases his strength. She grows her strength. Why? Virya Paramita. This is the fourth, the fourth stage, the fourth ground, which is Virya Paramita. So, it's not patience. Patience was before. And it's not Samadhi. Samadhi is next. He, his, her strength increases. Sheng Rulaijia Yong Now, something has happened. This is one of the images that came out in the fourth ground, which was he or she is reborn in the household of the Buddha. We kind of wrapped our heads around that one for a while. So, what does that mean? To be reborn in the household of the Buddha. And, let's see. I don't want to waste folks' time, but maybe I can remind you. Page 7. Remember page 7? Page 6 and page 7. That's where we first came into this idea. Okay? So, our bodhisattva has a new address. He's got a new business card. And it's, uh, what is it? It would be something like uh, Bodhi4 at Tathagata.net. Right? You have a new address, a new email address. Bodhi4, fourth ground. Fourth ground at Tathagata.net. Org or net? What would it be? Bodhi at Buddha.ground. G-R, something like that. So he's got a new place where you can find him. And it's very different from before because up to this place, up to the the fourth ground, he was still um, kind of aspiring. He was not yet at the level 
of the Buddha's, uh, those who are in the Buddha's family. So what is it? Uh, ten kinds of wisdom that bring dharmas mature. He realizes internal dharmas and he's born to thus come one's household. He gains rebirth by never retreating. He has pure faith, not destroyed. He contemplates how actions come and go. He contemplates how the nature of dharmas actually never rises. Oops, that's tough. He contemplates how worlds come into being and go away. He contemplates how karmas, the thing that creates everything, how birth and death and nirvana arise, how living beings and countries come, come about because of karma. He contemplates time, past and future, and things that have no end. All right? So there's, there's the Buddha's family. Okay, are we, is this, are we still on the same page? How are we doing here? What is this about? There is a level in the grounds where the Bodhisattva, although he is really not a Buddha, she is not a Buddha, there's a long way to go before they get to Buddhahood, but their wisdom is coming really close. And kind of there, there are levels where at the third ground, your wisdom is not that of the Buddhas. At the fourth ground, it is, and you don't retreat, but you're still not officially there. It's like, uh, what would it be like? If a, let's look at mathematics, okay? So in elementary school, you get addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. Then at a certain point, what do you get? You get geometry, you get, uh, what else? Algebra, okay? And then at a certain point comes calculus. And all this time, you're still using 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Okay? And then remember the time when you got square roots? Remember when you were introduced to square roots? What grade was that? Grade 6 or 7? I think it was middle school, right? Where you got the pi and the square root of things. So even though you're now in theoretical math, you're still using the alphabet. You're still using the numbers, the numerals, and the, all the basics. I think it's like that. The bodhisattva learns what Buddhas know and never retreats, but he still can't do the mathematics that a grad student does, kind of like that. So that's one way to understand this. So a lot is going on here. And uh, the bodhisattva, what does it say? He never retreats. He never falls away from what he understands. And look at faith is faith faith is stressed. This is one place where we hear about faith. And uh, the other uh, the other one of the power things here is contemplation. This verb comes back over and over. The bodhisattva is contemplating now. He has an ability to use his mind to look at things that before he couldn't. And he's contemplating how dharmas come into being and go away. And here's key. How they no longer arise. Okay? Now, this is one of those dharmas that, it's like I mentioned, the sixth ground. 
that we're going to get to that place where there's an ultimate level of truth. This is one of those. He sees how worlds come into being, how worlds go away, and yet nothing is created. How is that possible? Okay, and some of us are going to go, I don't get it. Others are going to go, sure. I, I saw that in my meditation this morning, right? Some people will say that's the way it is because I realize. Other people are going to go, this is nonsense. This does not make sense, logically. So we're, I'm predicting that we're all going to have these different responses to, to this, um, the, the appearance of two levels of truth. On the level of ordinary relative truth, where things are dual, two of this, true and false, front and back, night and day, male and female, yin and yang, on that level, makes no sense. Why? It doesn't add up. It is logically contradictory. You say A, but it's not A. So on the other level of truth, which is true at this moment, at the same time, but until this point has been hidden, been behind the screen, because why? Our wisdom didn't get there yet. At the same time, when you pull this screen back, when you pull the curtain aside, and the Buddha's wisdom is suddenly functioning, then those two polar opposites can coexist without contradiction. So that's the ultimate level of truth. So we have to, if that makes sense for you, then suddenly this opens up. If it doesn't yet, then you're like me. You have to kind of always put it in parentheses and say, okay, I won't judge. I'm not going to make a truth statement about it. This is either true or false. I'm going to suspend my judgment for the time being and say there's more to learn. There's more to learn. I don't have to say right or wrong. I don't have to say believe, disbelieve. I'm going to put it in a footnote, going to put it in my, my notes and say for future reference. Meanwhile, what more can I learn? Okay, I think that's a healthy attitude. So, why is that important? Because, look, it says he contemplates dharmas as impermanent and yet... What is it? Guan fa wu chang wu you qi. Dharmas are both wu chang. They come and they go, but they never arise at all. If you're paying attention, you've got to go, run that by me again. You just contradicted yourself. Okay. There you go. This is deep. That's why it's the Buddha Dharma. Buddha Dharma in China was called Kongmen, the gateway to emptiness, to shunyata, because the Chinese had never encountered this before. This is profound. The Indians had never encountered this before. Why? They hadn't had a Buddha yet. Right? What was the Buddha doing? The Buddha was able to sit still, and in the laboratory of his mind, Watch matter go away. Did it really go away? No, he contemplated how matter is what? Made up of conditions. 
Furthermore, he looked at the thing that's observing the matter, the ci. Remember we talked about bi. Guanzi said, if you want to know that, look at this. The Buddha looked at this, the, the thing that was doing the contemplating, and said, guess what? That too is made of conditions. Then he looked at what? Consciousness. Where does consciousness come? Consciousness comes together because of conditions. And as he was sitting there, this went away, this went away, this went away, that went away, that went away, that went away. What are you left with? As your meditation opens up, you're left with a couple levels of truth because at the very same time, it didn't go away. We share karma with people who are completely in the dark, for whom yin is yin, yang is yang. That stuff is really out there and I want it. And this stuff is really here and it's sad or joyful, right? Where dharmas really do rise. And the meditator, all he has to do is bring his senses back and suddenly there's the world of duality. He puts his senses into samadhi and the non-dual is immediately there. So it's, this is very, you know, it's magic, although it's not magic. If you take magic to mean conjured up by somebody. No, it's Buddha Dharma. Buddha Dharma. Okay, let's take a little break here. Last week, I had a fascinating experience because I was immersed in the world that gave rise to the Buddha Dharma. I was in a Hindu world um, with swamis, teachers, who were profoundly steeped in and rooted in the Indian cultural religious side of this that, gave, that produced the Buddha and that the Buddha surpassed. It was amazing to hear Swami Medananda Puri coming directly from Rishikesh, sitting in front of the audience, the, the seat that I'd been sitting in the night before. It was his turn. And he came out with stories, illustrations, that I had in my notes prepared that I could have used. I didn't use them, but I easily could have. I had more material than I used. He talked about how that the six senses, consciousness, can play tricks on you because it's not ultimate. Why? There is a rope. It is dark. The man walks on the road. He sees the rope. He says, snake, snake, there is snake. Is there snake? No snake. There is no snake. His mind sees snake. He responds, fear, not true. You know, <laughs> so, you know, and he says, snake is there, only to the man, you know. And I'm going, dude, man, look, you know, snake and the rope, that's, I got it right here. And then he tells the story about the prodigal son who, you know, at an early age leaves his father and the father has always thought about the son and, and the son goes off and gets into all kinds of terrible things happen to him and he, you know, the world happens to him, he wanders through the world and he forgets the father, the father never forgets the son. And the son comes back and the father recognizes him, the son doesn't, the father knows he wants to bring him back in and tell him that he's actually, you know, his own son and this is his 
his world if he wants it. And it's the prodigal sons, you know. There it was, you know. So here's the Swami, straight line, 6,000-year-old tradition of the Vedas that guess who learned the Buddha? Guess who took it to China? The patriarchs. Guess who learned it in China? Shurfu, because Shurfu mastered the teaching tradition. And he brought it to America and taught it to us. And here I have it in English. Same, it's like the branches come back to the root, right? One went Hindu, one went Buddhist. And through countries, from India, China, America. And here I am, ready with my story, and here's the Swami telling about it. So, wonderful, you know, wonderful. And then I heard the Swami, he is a pure Vedanta tradition. He took it to... He took it to the point of Brahma, which is the all in all, and stopped. <laughs> he really did. It's You go back and you merge into the primal nothingness. You don't go beyond where dharmas don't arise. The Buddha said, well, where does primal nothingness arise? And how do you know? And as soon as you ask that question, you go beyond the Vedanta. They don't ask this. They say, yes, it is all one. And you lose yourself in the, the all in all. You go back to God. Where does God go? Don't ask. So how, you know, to see this historical conversation still being con- talked about. Hasn't changed. Thousands of years, still alive. And... Furthermore, I was in this uh, community of uh, practicing yogis and they were doing the bhakti form of practice, which is our pure land. Bhakti means devotion, praise. And every day, twice a day and during the day, they were doing their chanting, doing their chanting the holy names. Namo Shivaya, Namo uh, Brahma, Namo Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Chanting, 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 chanting. Some of them cross over. When they go Namo Saravasti, Saraswati, Namaha, praising to Saraswati. Who is Saraswati? Bien Sai Tianyu. She's the goddess of eloquence. She is a Ufa. She is one of our bodhisattvas. So some of them, the Buddha brought right over. And you wonder why some and not others. How interesting. Sarasvati is called Bensai Tenyu. Shurfu told Dharma speakers that if you want to have eloquence before you lecture on sutras, put your palms together and, and you know, recite the name of Bensai Tenyu and she will bestow eloquence. Exactly what the Hindu tradition says is she is the source of music, she's the source of knowledge, culture, the arts, Eloquence. There she is. There's her picture on the wall. There's Sarasvati. So it's like, wow. This is very culturally, they're not two traditions. It's one fabric. But the Buddha's wisdom was able to see dharmas not arise. What do you do with that? Well, point to it. To say you understand it means you've realized it, not yet. But here are the bodhisattvas saying, ah, he's now reborn in the family of the Buddha? That's why. That's where his wisdom is now. 
That's what he can do with his mathematics, right? He's got addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. He's got fractions. He's got geometry and algebra. He's got square roots. And he's now able to do math at the Buddha's level. But he's not a Buddha yet. All right? Fourth ground. Okay? So we kind of have a sense of where this fits in with the whole story, which is all ten grounds. And that's what it means to be born in the family of the Tathagata. You now can use these kind of languages, use these kind of concepts, because they're yours. This is the fourth stage Bodhisattva. Third stage, not yet. Fourth stage, okay, he's got it. Okay, here we go. Guan shi cheng huai ye yo sheng sheng si nie pan cha deng ye kuan qian hou ji yi guan jin ru shi xiu xing sheng fu jia He contemplates the creation and destruction of worlds as coming from karma, birth, death, nirvana, and Buddha lands as equally from karma. He contemplates the boundaries of before and after, contemplates their cessation. That is how he cultivates to be born in the Buddha's household. Take a look at what it says. There's more guan, more looking. He sees. This bodhisattva's wisdom now shows him things that he couldn't see before. What are they? Shi cheng huai. Worlds come into being, worlds go away. Ye yo sheng, a karma created. Sheng si nie pan, cha deng ye. The karma that gives birth to and takes away life from living beings, the karma that goes to nirvana, and the karma that creates cha, Buddha land. Okay, looks at all those. He contemplates all those. Guan Qian Ho Ji Yi Guan Jin. Now, here's something interesting. Suddenly we've gone away from space and we've moved over to time. When, um, when the topic is um, cosmology, do you know the word like worlds? If you start looking at worlds, the, the measuring sticks, the yardsticks that always come out are space and time. You look at space and time, and some people will put them together and say, as long as you get to a certain speed and you do it long enough, you've got space. That's why you're moving. So if you're doing 60 miles an hour and you travel for an hour, how far have you gone? You say, well, it depends on traffic, Dharma Master. <laughs> right, good point. So, so time and space. He's gone, and what we were talking about before, space you know, worlds, karma that creates it, etc. Three realms. Now we go to time. He's looking at time. Past and future. They don't say present because from the Buddhist point of view, there's only one time from that ultimate point of view. Qian ho ji yi guan jin. But here it says the boundaries of the past and the boundaries of the future. He sees thoroughly. He contemplates to the end. Ru shi xing sheng fu jia. With this kind of cultivation, he is now the Buddha's child. 
He is now one of the members of the Buddhist family. Okay, so you think about this. And one thing that makes you humble. Um, Sherpa would talk about, Master Hua would talk about when he got to San Francisco in the 70s. He started teaching in the 60s, but uh, when Buddhist Lecture Hall was first set up, and then the first years of Gold Mountain, this was uh, 60, uh, 68, 69, and 70 were the, the years that we went from Chinatown over to the mission. And at that time, the uh, flower power had just kind of cooled off a bit. It was the summer of love had uh, kind of turned to the summer of drugs in the Bay Area. It wasn't quite as innocent at all. Telegraph Avenue had become dark and shadowy. When There were times in the 60s when you could fall asleep on Telegraph Avenue and wake up in the morning and you'd be covered of flowers. You know, Nobody ripped you off, but the people blessed you. And there was a time when if you did that, you were, you were either too drunk to notice or you're too stupid to you know, pay attention because you would wake up in the morning uh, without anything because you've been robbed and, you know. So, and the difference was hard drugs. Now that's, why am I talking about that tonight? That's more commentary than you all need, right? So, Shurfu came at that point and watched that turn over from innocence to loss of innocence. And one of the things that happened uh, when you teach as a spiritual teacher uh, is uh, people come and test you out. And lots of people would come and test out Master Hua. And Shurfu loved to, uh, to tell the stories. They had their names. Sufi Sam. Sam Lewis was one of the people. Sufi Sam is a those of you who don't know the story, Sufi Sam was a, quite a, a uh, celebrated mystic in San Francisco. And Sam Lewis, Murshid Sam Lewis. And he, had, he uh, went through pretty much every path there was to investigate. And he wound up being a Sufi, Sufi teacher. But he uh, used to come and see Master Hua and uh, would you know, sit and listen to the sutra lectures just like that. And uh, Joe Miller was another one. Joe Miller, the reason why I tell this story is, Joe Miller was a kind of a holdover from flower power and the hippie era. And Joe Miller's dharma was, everybody's a Buddha. And uh, when he was outside of the monastery, it was free love. You know, everybody's a Buddha and free love. And so Joe Miller was a charismatic guy and had been doing it for a long time. And you know, we were, we were brand new. We had no idea, nothing to compare with. Like China, they've had this Tao and that Tao, Zuo Tao, Yo Tao, and the Yi Guan Tao, and the, you know, the Pang Wan Zuo Tao, and they've, they've had them for, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So there's, people are not quite as naive. But Americans are like, we've just been out of the Eisenhower era. We've been out of World War II, and, and people didn't know anything. And so here's Joe Miller, you know, you're a Buddha, everybody's a Buddha. So uh, Joe Miller came in and, and would talk to Shurfu and say, you know, we're all Buddhas. And, and so Shurfu would say, oh, very good, very good. Now, what does the Buddha know? Well, the Buddha's, uh, Buddha's nirvana. You know, Joe Miller would come up with nirvana. And Shurfu would say, tell me about nirvana. 
And he would say, well, no death. Oh, very good. Is he afraid of death? Not afraid, never afraid. And so everybody's a Buddha? Are you a Buddha? Yeah, everybody's a Buddha. Shurfa would take out his stick and say, all right, if I kill you right now, are you afraid? And he would draw back. <laughs> this Chinese guy is crazy. You know? so, so Joe Miller came and went. But he, it was a, you know, it's not, it wasn't hard. It was, it was an ongoing relationship. And we would be like eyes very big watching this happen. Shurfa would teach everybody as they could be taught. So as you think about it, you know, here's Joe Miller, bless his heart. There was no standard, so he could say, you're a Buddha. Really? Cool. You know. Yeah. You know. And what does it mean to be the Buddha, to be born in the Buddha's household? You contemplate the realms of living beings, and you know them because you experience them. You contemplate the realm of space. You contemplate the realm of dharmas and you see them with your own eyes because your mind is pure and still. You contemplate the realm of consciousness, right? You contemplate the realm of desire, form and formless, because you've been, been there and back. You know it. And then you contemplate how worlds come into being, all born from karma. And you go, oh, it's a little harder than I thought. You know? <laughs> That's why this makes you humble when you realize what's involved in being a Buddha. You have major six senses, very quiet, very pure. Because why? You stopped killing a long time ago. You stopped eating meat a long time ago. You stopped stealing a long time ago. You stopped messing around a long, you know. Bit by bit, your, your six senses are just like, they're clean and subtle and like photographic paper. They just record everything without obstruction, then you practice until consciousness has now come over to wisdom. You can, the way, uh, I always give the example of a sewing machine. Probably, how many people have ever operated a sewing machine? The one of the foot treadle? Okay, yeah, one few, yeah. So, remember a really good Singer sewing machine? Not the electric ones, but the, and it goes, Based on the treadle, it's just this. It's it works very well. It's refined. Bicycle people, bicycle people know that feeling of how a bike, when it's tuned and flawless, it doesn't wobble you know, like that. When you have samadhi, your mind goes like that. You can suddenly it's at you know twenty thousand RPMs when it was at two thousand before, and it's like that. It works really well. And consciousness transforms. And you actually see these things. It's not theory. This is your awareness because you can contemplate. Our main verb here for the fourth ground is guan bodhisattvas, seeing these things without being told, without looking at the book. He sees them. She sees them with his own inner wisdom. Okay? And... He's born in the Buddha's household because he's really clear on ia, karma. Cause and effect is clear to him. So when you look at this fourth stage, you go, whoa, now this is, this is uh, one beyond, this is one third of the way to Buddhahood. Right? This is the fourth stage out of ten. 
So he's born in the Buddha's household now. Okay. And um, should we do, we should probably do one more to, make, to get on down here. Um, okay, let's do that. Here we go. De shi fa yi zeng si min Chuan gong qin xiu si nian chu Shen shou xin fa nei wai guan Sheng shi jian tan ai jie chu qian Having obtained this dharma, he increases in sympathy and kindness and with ever-increasing diligence, cultivates the four stations of mindfulness, body, feelings, thoughts, and dharmas, contemplated inside and out. Worldly greed and worries in this way are expelled. All right. If you recall, this has been, um, because it's the verses, it's cut very terse, very brief. What's he doing? Once he born in the reborn in the Buddhist family, he has said, living beings are suffering like mad. I really feel it. I feel the pain. I feel your pain, he said. My Bill Clinton accent is not very good. I feel your pain. And he wants to find a way to end it. So what does he do? He discovers that Buddha Dharma is the way to end it. So he sets himself on the path to learn as much Buddha Dharma as he can possibly learn because that's what's going to get to the, the knot that he wants to untie. The afflictions are tied because of confusion here, so he's going to untie it with Buddha Dharma. So he wants to find teachers, and that's what happened in the third ground. Now he's found them, he's learning the Dharma, and in this ground we get the Dharmas. Here is this long, remember, this long list of, we went through this for, for months, of things that he is mastering so he can teach. Here's the first of them. De shi fa yi zeng si min. Once he gets reborn in the Buddha's family, his sympathy, si min, his compassion, his empathy grows. So he, his, like his nervous system now connects with everybody else's nerves and what they're what's impacting their senses, he feels. So he spurs himself on to what are called the four Brahma Viharas. The four Brahma Viharas. The four pure abodes. The four pure places. This list, the Si Nian Chu, is one of those Buddha Dharma lists that almost everybody gets. If you are ever in a interfaith setting, when somebody says, are there any Buddhists present and could they contribute, you know, something to our discussion? Or if you're with your mom or your little sister or brother and they want to know something that you've been learning from this monastery or out in California, you know, you could say, well, what about this? Here's something that the Buddha, where does the, where do Buddhists live? And if you have this list, you know, in your pocket, you can bring this out, and it sounds really uh, helpful. This is digestible. 
And what is it? It's four propositions. Um, see line three. Shen shou xin fa nei wai guan. That's the, that's the shorthand Chinese for them. What is it? Shen, body. Shou, feelings. Xin, thoughts. Fa, dharmas. Nei wai guan. He looks at him inside and outside. What are they? It says the four the four stations of mindfulness, the four Brahma Viharas are you contemplate, you look at, you see, and this is again, where do you with your eyes know, you you put this seeing inside. You look with your heart, you look with your wisdom. How the body is shen jie go, shen bu jing. What is it? Not pure. The body is impure. Shen bu jing. Guan, it's a contemplation. Now, got to define that. Doesn't mean, oh, body's dirty. No, it's that the body falls apart. It's reality-based. It's doctor-based. It's medical-based, right? Which is, uh, how many times did you visit the bathroom today? I don't have to tell me, but I'm just saying for your own reference, right? Why? Because your body exhausts waste products. Like any living thing, in comes the oxygen, out goes the CO2, right? That's impure, meaning it's always expelling stuff. It has a lifespan. We are limited in our breaths. How many breaths are you going to take before you quit? I hope a lot more, you know. But they're numbered, right? Nobody doesn't lose their body periodically every 60, 70, 80, 90 years, right? So, that's one. Number two, show. Show. Show jie ku. Feelings are all ku. Dukkha. There's that word. Suffering? No, you can't say feelings are all suffering. What about, you know, petting a kitten? Right? When you pet a kitten, it's not suffering. No. Ku means unsatisfying. Now, what? that's dukkha. It doesn't hit the spot. What are the show? Show are two kinds. One is sensation, but the other is also emotion. That's also in here. So we got the body. We have feelings, which is the next level, the body's function. What does it mean to be unsatisfying? Okay, what happened to your bliss? Well, my bliss went away. Why, why did it go away? Well, it just went away. Can you bring it back? Well, I got to chant some more. That was one of the things I noticed at, uh, at the ashram where I was last week. The uh, Hindu bhakti tradition is very much into bliss. They, they really do, bliss are us. They really do bliss, right? They're, they have this, they're, they're chanting, chanting, chanting. And there's one verse in the chanting that goes, I am bliss, I am bliss, bliss absolute, bliss I am. And, 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 and I, I saw the people with their eyes closed. They're going back and forth, chanting, I am bliss. Damn it, I am bliss. How I am bliss. Bliss absolute. Where'd it go? You know, she's bliss. I'm not bliss. You know, and it's like, okay, okay. You know, bless your heart. You're trying. At least you're trying, you know. Oh, man. So Buddhists don't do bliss so much. We, we do stillness really well, you know. And let bliss come by itself because it will, but it will go. And this, you know, uh, 
white knuckle bliss, you know. <laughs> it's like, oh man, you try so hard that you just force the bliss away, you know. So I think at least they're, you know, they're in the right. It's better than I am anger, I guess, but still, not much different. So, shojeku, what is it? Feelings go away. They're always coming or going. If it's not one, it's the other. It's like weather. So what do you do? You contemplate. You say, yeah, they're not satisfying. Don't pursue them. Don't try to hang on to them. Don't chase them. Don't be upset when they leave because that's their nature. They're based upon something that is not profoundly stable. The six senses. So, okay, contemplate them this way, right? Xin, what? Xin wuchang. Number three is thoughts don't last. Thoughts are impermanent. Xin wuchang. That's the third Brahma Vihara, pure abode. That is hugely liberating. If you can be in an interfaith group or with your sister who's having trouble with her boyfriend, and you can say, yeah, the Buddha, she's a, what do the Buddha say that can help me out? You say, well, thoughts don't last. That just that is so liberating because you realize that's true. Thoughts go. Endlessly. When did we have our first thought? Some people would say in the womb. When do we have our last thought? Some people would say you can still think when you're out of your body after death. When your consciousness has left your body, the mind is still. It's let thoughts think us. It's not that we have thoughts. We don't, if, if, we can, if we can liberate ourselves from identifying with our thoughts, we are free of a huge amount of our Western cultural hang-up. Oh, he's just an angry person. No, he's not. He has angry thoughts that he doesn't check. You know, oh, so-and-so is just depressed. No, you're not depressed. You have thoughts that are stuck. And if you let them go, you'll see, oh, no, not always. When did you start being depressed? When did you stop being depressed? Thoughts come and go like waves in the water. They come and go. To say, I am these thoughts is confusion. That's not the case. Xin wuchang. Thoughts come and go. All right? And the fourth one, fa wuo. Dharmas are not self. Me. That's the next step towards liberation, which is to say, don't attach your identity to the environment either. Starting with this one, right? I'm not this either. So when you apply the question, who am I to body, feelings and sensations, thoughts and dharmas, you get the answer, Actually, honestly, I don't know because I can't find it. These are profound meditation topics. And they're so, you know, it's like in a teaspoon, you've got the Buddha's, the size of the Buddha's wisdom with these four viharas, the four Brahma, pure viharas, places, the four pure places to, to dwell. If you can live here, live in body, feelings, thoughts, and dharmas, you've... You've set yourself free from all kinds of worldly attachments. So this is a sample of the kind of thing that this bodhisattva is now picking up on the fourth ground because why he knows who he's going to explain it to. He knows the people who can hear this and when to tell them 
and how much and who will get benefit from it. And that's just one. That's one of these things called Buddha Dharmas, right? The Sunyanchu, the four Brahma Viharas. How powerful that is. And you can just, you know, trot that out at lunch sometime and people will go, whoa, is that online? Can I, can I listen to that? That's really good. That's very helpful. So, body, feelings, thoughts, and dharmas. He contemplates inside and outside. Worldly greed and worries are expelled in that way. Just by looking at that, you don't grab on to stuff as much because you realize you can't get it. It's gone. It comes and goes. And worries go away too. Why be greedy and worry over something that you can't hold on to? Well, the answer is because we're attached. But still, you can get less attached if you look at it in this way. And what is it? It's only a contemplation. It's just a way of looking. But it's a profoundly helpful way of looking. Why? That's a couple steps into the verses of the, the fourth ground. And next week we'll go through. And this is the um, 10,000 Buddha's repentance bowing period up at CTTB. We've had one week of it already. And it's got two more to go. So I think it's good that we're just kind of reviewing because these verses are the review, the summary. When we'll be done... I'll see if we can't, let's see here, one, yeah, it'd be good if we could finish these verses in, in two more weeks, and that we, we hit these uh, lists of dharmas, so then when the, the bowing's over, we'll be starting in on the fifth, ground number five. Can we transfer merit I didn't bring my guitar because I didn't have three hands. So I'm not, I don't have an accompaniment with, uh, with these instruments. That's too low. studying wisdom, and send it out to the world that is uh, so much in need of it. And you, everyone, I think, has a sense of where they would, where the pain is hurting, and you can send your wisdom there, send your merit, transfer that goodness there.
With hearts of goodness, luminous and bright. If people hear and see how hands and hearts can find in giving unity, may their minds awake to great compassion, wisdom, and to joy. May kindness find reward. May all who sorrow leave their grief and pain. May this boundless light break the darkness of their endless night. Because our hearts are one, this world of pain turns into paradise. May all become compassionate and wise. May all become compassionate and wise. Okay. Um, people have songbooks? Turn to page 40. Page Turn the light and turn around Found a penny on the ground Met a friend I always know Bowing down on a rocky road Bow down and turn around Look inside and see Black or white, is it up or down? Is it in the sky, is it on the ground? Bow down and turn around, look inside and see.
leave the beaches, find the gate. Hurry up now, don't be late. Leave the false and find the true. Ten thousand Buddhas inside of you. Bow down and turn around. Look inside and see. doesn't get out enough. All right? Nice job. This in my notices? Nobody? And the what? Nope. Close. What? Mandolin, what kind? It's called an octave mandolin. Mandolins are usually about this this big, right? But this has all this, so it goes, you know, as well as. And uh, this is koa wood, very beautiful, from Hawaii. And it was made in Bozeman, Montana. The flat iron. Beautiful instrument. It's great for a drone because. Om Shivanam Brabaya Sarasvati Vaya Om Santi Shanti Shanti Peace I am bliss until I'm not Om You bet I'd rather be peaceful than its alternative, okay? to meet Maud Evans. Maud Evans was born in 1908 in England. This is Maud. So she's older than anybody in the room, including me. And Maud is unique because she has a slot head banjo. You don't see slot head banjos. And it's a five string. And where's the fifth string? There's always the peg here, right? But Maud's Fifth string goes in a little tunnel. This is a unique banjo design, and it's a this is a uh, a British banjo from the era when banjos were popular in England. And Maud Evans was a real singer in in, in England at the time, the turn of the century, and uh, so famous that she had a banjo named after her. So this is the Maud Evans model.
Page 41 here. Um, this is interesting because I haven't sung this before. You, you all have not heard this before. Um, but it's, uh, it's one of those songs that, uh, this is, both of these are by Hung Chao. This is Hung Chao's uh, lyrics that never really made it into a melody. So um, uh, I thought this is worth... It's worth telling because um, this is one of those sides of the pilgrimage that doesn't get talked about much. And uh, people think uh, after the, and it was, you know, 1977, 1987 is 10 years, 1997 is 20 years, 2007 is 30 years, 30 plus 6 years ago, right? 77 to 79. That's, uh, that's a long time ago to still remember an event. And people um, imagine that it was very blissful. In fact, this song tells another side of it, which is this was written from the journals. Praying on the ground How will they ever Ever put it down Three steps up And one bow down One of them is silent One of them is blind Constantly ahead And constantly behind Scared by empty shadows, blinded by his eye. Forever they are bowing a pilgrimage inside. And every day they fail Eight winds always blowing They can't control their sails Their boat is full of leaks They can't turn back for sure They vowed to cross over And then come back for more 
With Dharma friends and teachers Writing vows made long before Together crossing over Always coming back for more Always coming back for more That one ends kind of abruptly. It's a couple lines short. So <laughs> anybody wants to write those last two lines, go ahead. Okay. Uh, so, thank you, Maud. How about that? This was made in 1960, so it's older than about half of you in the room. <laughs> that one's made in 1908. How beautiful. Get these old voices back. Okay. Um, I was asked to tell a story, and I will. It's a great story. And somebody is in the room who actually played a role in this story. And the story is uh, one of our mentors and role models, uh, Dr. Y.C. Jung. Who is Dr. Y.C. Jung? You have been looking at his calligraphy all these years and never maybe knew it. That's Dr. Zhang's calligraphy. This is Gong Yang Yi Chie Zhu Fo Hai De Ban Zheng Wu Lo Shang Let's see De Wu Wu Shang Zhao Shi Deng Zheng De Wu Shang Zhao Shi Deng That's it. So um, make offerings to the ocean of every Buddha and realize the state of the unsurpassed lamp that lights up the world. That's a verse from the Avatamsaka. So, furthermore, our front doors, our new, new as of what, eight years, our, new front, our front doors are from Dr. Jiang and, and Madam Jiang, Hui Liu. Um, so they have been part of every major event that we've had here since the start, including uh, Hung Chao, Marty, uh, was introduced to the Buddha Dharma through the, through the Jiangs, as well as Bhikshuni Hung Liang came to Buddha Dharma through her connection to the Wu school. So um, Master Jiang uh, was recently in China and had a very, very serious health episode. Last year, he past his 90th birthday. So he is now uh, 91, or in that, he's not yet, but he's coming to 91. Um, and his illness was so acute that uh, his lungs completely filled up with water and his heart was filling up with water. And uh, so obviously his kidneys were at issue and so they their function had had been impacted somehow and uh, he was he was in extremely severe pain really really painful and he the lungs were huge they were pressing on his heart and uh, he went to the emergency room because he you know couldn't stand it now this is a man who uh, up until just a few years ago could lean over and put his chin on his toe. He was so strong, meaning flexible, 
strong in Chinese martial arts, strong meaning supple, not ying, you know, not like that. But he was one of the, he's one of the strongest men you'll ever meet, and he's, it's a lifetime of practice of martial arts, and he's also a very good man. He's a virtuous and and uh, good teacher of Chinese culture in all its various aspects, along with Madam Madam Zhang, Mrs. Shermu, we call her. So he is Zhang Shifu and Zhang Shermu. He's a very good man, and he's been quietly doing the hard work at the Wu School for all these decades in the Bay Area. Good guy. And uh, so when the illness comes, you're, you know, 90 years old, you've got this life-threatening illness suddenly that comes on very suddenly, and uh, you see who wins. Does the illness win or does the body win? So he, uh, I went over to see him this week, and he said, Hong Shi, he said, tell everybody about this. So what was it? He said he was at this point where he said his heart felt like it was going to burst. And if, if water came out of his mouth, he said, you know, and you're, that's, you're dead. You know? So right at that point, he said, uh, he saw Shakyamuni Buddha and Amitabha Buddha and uh, he said, you know, the bodhisattvas, Buddhas and bodhisattvas, came to him. And he, uh, they, were going, they decided to do an operation, a serious operation on him to get the, the water out. And it's a two-hour serious operation. And he said, uh, it took 20 minutes and he w- there was no pain whatsoever and he was in the recovery room, and he said, "I came to him in a dream." He said, "He said you came to me in a dream." And he was telling me this; his tears were coming out. And and I said to him, "Sure, uh, I'm in seclusion. I'm I'm over here meditating. I can't come and see you, but I I wanted to know how you were." He said, "So true or not, that's what he said." But the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas came to Master Jung. And he, with no pain, a two-hour operation became a 20-minute operation. And he said uh, that his, his children and his, his adopted children, who we won't name because he'd be embarrassed, but he's sitting here tonight, uh, stayed by his side for days, with taking, taking turns, rotation, keeping him going and safe. And then he had to go back in and have a second operation because it wasn't draining correctly but they got the most of the fluid out and uh, his uh, his students who are also now his doctors uh, took care of him and when I saw him on Friday he looked just like himself you know some puffiness in the hands but other than that he just looked like you know Zhang Shifu at age 90 and his light is back and he's walking around so he didn't die <laughs> and I mean, any lesser mortal would have gone, just gone, you know. And I said to him, I said, Zhang Shifu, it's people go through these experiences only and come out the other side only when they have blessings and they have the virtuous practices, and they've been doing martial arts correctly 
as long as you have. I said, you are the best advertisement for martial arts I've ever seen. You know, you speak the Dharma with your body. Shen Shen Shofa. And he said, oh, oh, he said. <laughs> so, you know, he was giving it all to the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. I said, yeah, well, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas can come and to you because you're, you're, you stand, you know, you stand. So, so that was very nice to see. And he said, I should tell the story about him. Now, and, and Zhang Shirmu said, uh, Shirfu has decided to stop eating meat. <laughs> she was proud of that. I said, yes, you know, right on, you know. So if it takes that much to get him to stop eating meat, oh, man. <sighs> so very, very nice story. And uh, now he, five years ago, he had another crisis, a health crisis, and he made it through that one. So if you want to get to be 90 and make it through the health crises, start working on your chin to toe. And if you can't get there, do the 19 basics every day. And when the time comes, King Yama will have to wait a little longer to see you again. So, good story. Uh, I predict that Will Zhang Shifu will be here, probably walking around before too long. He'll be over to come over to see us, you know, proudly. So, very nice. Um, keeping up with our series of uh, oh, Locke, do you want to add anything to that story? Is there is that was that correct? Some of the things I said. No, sounds good to you. Okay. If you're sick, you're in good hands, Kai. As long as he's around. And the proof is his patient's up and walking. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, interesting. Uh, I've been, we've been looking at the uh, responses of mainstream, normal um, college students to Buddhist philosophy when they meet it fresh, having had no background. And what, uh, what are their experience? You know, this is the final exams. Of, we're running out of time here. Final exams of some young people who met the Buddha Dharma fresh in Bond University, far off Queensland, the southeastern corner, right where you drive, drive 15 minutes in your car and you're in New South Wales, right there at the corner. And... Uh, this one is so interesting because why? This young man grew up on a mountain farm in Norway. So, okay, so here's the, here's the globe, right? And Queensland is down here, and Norway is up here, you know? And how did he find his way to, to uh, semi-tropical Australia? Conditions, but we met nice guy. In today's society, there's an abundance of knowledge regarding the things we base our diet on. I believe in making conscious, well-thought-through decisions regarding one's diet. Personally, growing up on a farm where working with and looking after animals, while at the same time taking advantage of their products in terms of milk, cheese, and meat, was never an issue. I have never been influenced or encouraged by anybody to change my diet towards a more sustainable plant-based diet which might also be a cultural thing growing up in Norway 
where our diet consists of a lot of fish and meat and where the potato is our best friend. However, after leaving my home at 16 and starting my own path towards working out who I am, my eyes have been opened to the importance of taking responsible choices in all aspects of your life. Throughout this course, the importance of karma has really encouraged me to become more critical of the choices I make, with my diet being the one that I have often neglected in the past. What we put in our bodies heavily influences the quality of our lives. By thinking about what I want to achieve with my life, I've realized I have to start now, not tomorrow. Alcohol is basically a poison to the body, which has made me decide to cut it out of my diet completely. Being an active surfer, biker, skier, and rock climber, I want to utilize my potential when participating in these activities. <coughs> Alcohol, along with a bad diet, is a restriction or a hindrance in my quest to achieve the results I desire from these activities. My good friend Joe at One Ocean International is a free diving instructor and can hold his breath close to five minutes at a time. His diet is a vital part of his job as he feels the effects of his dietary choices better than most, as the body is under immense physical pressure when it's submerged 20 meters below the surface. How far is 20 meters? Is that three times 20, 60 feet? 60 feet? Okay, 60 feet down. That's, where's 60 feet? This is longer than 60 feet. Seven stories. So deep. And uh, when it's submerged 20 meters below the surface and screaming for oxygen, he has told me that he cannot perform even close to his best if he has had red meat the day before diving. And even worse, if he consumes alcohol. He does, however, eat fish, which is a better option than red meat. His story did, however, make me think, as he told it to me when I was studying this course, if he performs better by not eating red meat and drinking alcohol, what if he refrains from eating any sort of meat, including fish, and follows a plant-based diet? Based on his experiences, wouldn't that mean he'd be able to perform even better? Logic would suggest so, and I believe science would back logic up in this case. I believe in karma, that every action has a reaction, and that we as human beings are responsible for the actions we take and the decisions we make. My interpretation of karma has been slightly changed throughout the course of this semester. Applying the idea of karma to my diet is something I never really thought about before studying Buddhist philosophy. It does, however, make complete sense to me as a person. It's something I've thoroughly thought about over the last few months. Growing up on a farm in the mountains, I've always felt close to nature and animals, and I love interacting with both. Making the decision to take a stand against exploiting innocent animals is something that feels right for me. Taking karma into consideration of my diet allows me to make even better choices towards living a good life with a lower impact of other living be on other living beings. I am no big fan of society. This guy's a loner. He's a pioneer, extremist, you know, extreme sports by himself. Having I am no big fan of society and inspired by Dick Pronicky, who lived on his own in the wilderness for 40 years, I have always dreamed of eventually removing myself from society 
to be able to grow my own food and look after my own needs independent from the norms of society. In this regard, applying the karmic process to my diet becomes even more evident as the right decision towards achieving this. Aligning all aspects of your life towards who you want to be is something I believe is truly important. Practicing a plant-based diet is a personal choice I've made in order to become who I want to be from several points of view. It is, as I said, a choice I can make as I have access to the necessary information and necessary resources to put theory into practice. I do at the same time believe that science plays an important part in this process. A great portion of the world's population does not have the choice in this matter as they eat meat out of necessity. I do believe or hope that this can be justified from a Buddhist perspective when considering karma. As there is no higher authority waiting to strike you down and punish you for wrongful deeds, you answer only to yourself. This is another aspect of Buddhism I admire. That is why I do believe that being unable to practice a plant-based diet out of scientific reasons, i.e. not having access to fresh vegetables through all four seasons, can be justified. That's also one of the reasons why I will never try to influence others to change their diet by any other means than asking them to think about what is right for them. In the same way that feedlots are inhumane and unnatural, so is the production of crude palm oil, which destroys thousands of hectares of rainforest and wildlife habitat annually, resulting in the deaths of threatened species. We have access to the necessary information we need to take well-informed decisions. Following a diet that has minimal negative impacts on our world is something that should be practiced by those who are able. These findings, he says, have encouraged me to go ahead and change my own diet. I've always enjoyed fruits and vegetables more than most people and was always given strange looks by my friends and family when I consumed raw broccoli and cauliflower in my youth, a habit that I still keep. Experimenting with different styles of vegetarian cooking and its fulfilling results have further encouraged me to go ahead with the change. Our access and ability to make well-informed decisions based on facts and choice is a gift we should put into practice. How about that? Supposed to be 500 words, that was 1,086 words. We gave him a good grade. Yeah. Okay, how nice to have uh, access to the minds of bright young people. Oh, 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 o